listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. sermon. Well, I am excited because we are going through a series here called The Story, and we're learning that all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is actually a story. We don't always think of it that, that way. Sometimes we think, well, there's the story of Daniel in the lion's den, there's, uh, you know, David with uh, his sling, and then there's all these, this thing about Elijah, go, Elisha going up a hill where a bunch of kids call him baldy. That's an actual story. You should read that when you go home. Um, but we're learning that all of this is unified. Right? There's one single continuous narrative thread that, that weaves its way through all of Scripture, and uh, it's all telling the same story. It's all pointing us ahead toward Jesus. So one of the goals we've had as we've started to make our way through the story is for you to be able to give a clear, concise answer when someone asks you, what is the plot line of the Bible? What is it all about, anyway? There's a lot of different ways we could answer that, but, but what is the Bible at its core? And in three distinct points, this is the answer that, that we can give. So I invite you to say this with me now. The Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. So if you're just joining us today for the first time, uh, here's a 20,000-foot flyover of what we've covered so far. Chapter 1, we talked about creation in the beginning. We had Adam and Eve, and we have the fall from grace, and then we have the story of their children and Cain and Abel, and there's this, this terrible murder, and then we move on to the flood, and essentially it's a, a second creation, like all of the, the world is really wiped out, and God kind of starts all over with a new Adam, and his name is, is Noah. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we jump into this guy, we jump into this story of a guy named Abraham, and we find out that Abraham is this person whom God has chosen to be God's special um, people. People of Israel are going to come from, from Abraham, and he makes this promise. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And we learned all about Abraham a couple weeks ago. And then last week, we learned about Joseph. Joseph was one of the sons of, of Israel who was named Jacob, and then he had his name changed to Israel when he wrestled with God. And Joseph, uh, you remember this story, the way that it goes is uh, he has some issues with his brothers. Anybody else here have issues with your brothers? Joseph was maybe the only one. Yeah, I see that hand. I see that hand right there. Um, he had some issues, and uh, the brothers, they, they took and they threw him into a pit. He was sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt, but then there was this, this wonderful reconciliation, this beautiful picture of forgiveness where Joseph forgives his brothers for all these terrible wrongs that they committed against him years and years ago. And eventually, Pharaoh invites all of the Israelites to come and live in Egypt. It wasn't a massive crowd at that time, but as you can imagine, their numbers grew, and they're getting really, really big. They're getting to be so big, in fact, that the Egyptians start to think, man, these Israelites, there's so many of them, uh, we need to, to put them in slavery, because if we don't, they're going to rebel against us, they're going to join with some other nations when they come up against us, and they're going to fight us, so we better put them into slavery. And this is where chapter 4 picks up today. There's a gentleman by the name of Moses. Anybody here heard of Moses? Sure hope so. All right. 
Moses gets the Ten Commandments on, uh, on Mount Sinai, right? We'll get to that next week. But for now, Moses gets called by God to go to King Pharaoh and to set, tell them to let the Israelites go, to set them free. You know how the story goes. There's these plagues, a lot of different plagues, ten different plagues that, that happen. And um, again and again, Pharaoh says, no, I will not let your people go, even after he promises he will. His heart gets hardened. And then finally we get to this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, this angel of death is going to pass through all of Egypt, and the firstborn is going to be killed, even of the animals. But for God's people, it's going to be different. Remember, He made this promise, this covenant. When God makes His promises, He always follows through on them. So He made this covenant with Abraham way back in the day, and He's not going to let His people go. He's not going to allow His people to die because through Israel will come this promised Messiah. And so he provides for them with this thing called the Passover. And that's what we're going to read about today. If you have your copy of the story, you can turn to page 51 or you can follow along as we read from Scripture. This will be in chapter 12 of Exodus, starting at verse 1. And uh, it'll jump, a, jump ahead a little bit. We're going to go all the way through verse 13. I invite you to rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a, a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old mates without defect, and you, excuse me, <laughs> males, year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive them, to respond to them. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you, if you've heard me give any sermon at all, are probably familiar by now with the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, right? Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is, objectively speaking, the most beautiful place in the world, okay? I don't think anybody can argue with that scientifically proven fact, right? Boundary Waters, go there. If you haven't, you need to get up there, okay? So we take a, a trip, my family does, most summers, 
And a lot of times when we do this, we'll, we'll maybe bring our own canoe. My dad and brother have a Kevlar canoe now. And uh, sometimes we'll rent a Kevlar canoe. Now, the thing is, we've done it with all sorts of things. You do it with an aluminum canoe. Aluminum canoes are great until you've got a portage. Then you've got to, like, lug this massive thing on your shoulders, right? Kind of the same with the, uh, with the fiberglass ones. They're a little bit better. But we, we've tried the, the Kevlars, and, and they're awesome for portaging. So you put this thing on your shoulders, it feels like nothing. The thing that's not great about them, though, is when you get out into... Uh, a big open lake on a windy day, they don't have a lot of weight to them, so the wind will kind of blow them all over. And uh, this happened to me one time when I was out there. My dad and my brother were in the canoe in front of me. They were paddling along. Their canoe was weighted down really good. I'm not sure what kind of canoe they had. I think they had a Kevlar too, but if you have all your packs in there, like it's pretty stable. You're good to go. So they were paddling. I was behind them in a Kevlar canoe by myself. And I remember all of a sudden the wind started to pick up, and I felt it. I felt this canoe starting to go back and forth, and I was watching the shore, because usually you try to stick somewhat close to the shore, and all of a sudden, that shore started to get a little bit further away, bit by bit, and uh, the wind kept hitting me, and I kept paddling, and I kept paddling, and no matter what happened, I wasn't able to get myself back on course. I, I thought, I, I had it in my mind that I would be able to steer this thing, to guide my ship, to, to go where I needed to go, to, to overcome the forces of the wind and the waves and the, the current, everything kind of trying to push me out, right? But I wasn't able to do this. Here's my point with that story. We are not as in control of our lives and our destinies as we sometimes imagine. We are not as free as we think we are. In fact, it gets worse. Not only are we just not just not free, we're actually in bondage. And I'm not just talking about certain people here. What I'm saying is that if you are a human being, you are not born free. Neutrality is a myth. You are in bondage. You are in prison. You are like I was in that canoe. Everything is going fine. Everything is going great till that wind picks up and you realize, man, I am at the mercy of forces much bigger and stronger than myself. And you can't escape. Now, maybe this sounds a little bit drastic to you and you're thinking, all right, I get it. You're a pastor. You've got to preach. You've got to use strong language here. But seriously, even for a pastor, this word bondage, uh, I mean, isn't that a, a little bit extreme? It's one thing to say, yeah, we're, we're not as strong or autonomous as we like to think, but it's another to say that we're slaves. That's a bridge too far, Right? But I want, to, I want to invite you to reflect on your own life for just a moment and to answer the question, how free do you think you are? When was the last time you walked up to someone and asked, hey, how you doing? And they said, oh, I'm so free. Just so free. My life is so free. My time is my own every minute. I get to set my own schedule, right? This is how life works. You set your own timeline. You get to choose when you clock in and clock out at work. You determine when the grandkids are born and how healthy they are. You decide when to turn in your homework. You pick your own salary. You pick your coworkers. You decide when you get sick. You decide how old age affects you. You determine the weather patterns, right? Isn't that how those new GPS units work on those tractors? 
Right? You just punch in the, the weather you want and you get it. You decide when temptation rears its head. You choose when the driver in front of you hits the brakes and the gas pedal. You choose the moment of your death. That's, that's how life works, right? See what I'm getting at? <laughs> Maybe it's actually the case that we're not as free and strong as we think we are. Like the Israelites in bondage to the Egyptians, we're subject to forces stronger than us, our own sin nature, the death, uh, the devil, death. And hard as we might try to paddle our way out, it feels like that current, at some point that current is stronger than we are. At some point we'll run out of juice, the canoe will overturn, or we'll just give up the fight. Now the question is, when this sort of thing happens, right? Because we've all had these moments when you could say you're in the metaphorical canoe getting swept out to, to the middle of the lake. When the bad times hit, when sickness rears its head at the least opportune time, when there's a family tragedy, when, when anxiety and depression, when those dogs just sink their teeth into you, what do we do when we feel the forces of evil moving in, when we experience temptation, our default impulse, I would suggest, and Scripture bears this out, is that our default impulse is to try to save ourselves. Right? I'm in trouble. I better swim harder. I better paddle harder. Self-salvation projects are always near and dear to the human heart just kind of the way that, that it works after the fall. Now, I can remember when we got caught, and when I got caught in the wind that day, the very first thing that I, I tried to do was I got on my pad and I thought, all right, what I need to do is increase my strokes per minute. I just got to, like, I'm going like this. I need to go harder. I need to go faster. I need to paddle more and more and more, and that will get me out of this. Try that. Didn't work. So I thought, well, maybe I'll switch over to the other side of the canoe. Same thing. Didn't work. I tried this thing called a J-stroke, which is this special way where you, like, you twist your wrist at the end of your strokes to give it a little bit of rudder to kind of direct it a certain direction. No dice. Nothing at all was working for me. No matter what I did, no matter what, what method I tried, couldn't get there. I, I couldn't, couldn't make any progress. Finally, what happened was the wind died down enough. It was coming in gusts. It died down enough where I was able to make a beeline toward the shore and I got to the shore, hopped out of the canoe, it was shallow there, and I was able to push the canoe um, just along the shoreline. And if you know anything about shorelines, uh, they are not straight lines. The word line is a misnomer because uh, the shore, it goes everywhere, right? Shortest distance between two points is a straight line, not the shore. So it took me forever to try to push my way back on my own. I was set and I was determined and yet... My own self-salvation project had failed me miserably. I wonder if you can identify with this analogy at all. Kind of the, the vanity of our self-salvation projects. It's human nature to try to help ourselves out of our predicaments because we assume, and we don't even question this, we assume that we have it within us to get out of whatever predicament we're in whether it's mowing our lawns, right, or, or checking on the cows or bringing in the groceries 
or battling addiction, we don't like to ask for help. Maybe that's a Midwestern thing. I don't, I don't know. But we're fiercely independent. I'll take care of it myself, please, and thank you. But here's my question. What if you can't? What if you run up against something in life that you cannot overcome? What if you keep getting slammed up against the rocks? What if no matter what 10-step plan you try, it never sticks? And you think, why does this keep happening? Why do I keep failing? Why do I keep like, falling into bad habits over and over again? Is it because I'm not paddling hard enough? Is it because I don't have the right strategy? Am I just weak? What if you can't free yourself from bondage, from the current that keeps carrying you away? You remember back in chapter 1 of the story when we talked about creation, right? You remember we learned about the fall, Adam and Eve's fall into sin. The fall really, I've heard it described, the fall isn't probably the best way to describe that because a fall implies like it just sort of happened by accident. It was more of a reach, a reach. It was, it was intentional on the part of, of Adam and Eve. But the results of the fall are that we live in a world that is no longer the way it's supposed to be. Paul says in Romans that creation is in bondage to decay and that it aches and groans to be set free. Have you done much aching or groaning in your life? There's a reason for that. We live in a sin-infected, death-saturated world where even our best attempts to stave off evil fall far short. And we've seen this in the news recently. Even the supposedly impenetrable Israeli Iron Dome can't stop the Hamas missiles. See, this side of heaven, our best attempts at being good don't come anywhere close to the mark. As it says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Like the Israelites, we find ourselves trapped and imprisoned in Egypt, railing against the bars, shouting at forces and impulses too strong for us to control. But the good news is that God won't let us languish there forever. He, he loves us too much for that because He is faithful to His people and He is faithful to His promises. So He sent a rescue, right? The Day of Atonement. What happened on the Day of Atonement? You remember this. God instituted this thing called the Passover. The Israelite families each had to kill a young lamb or goat and then they, they took the blood from that and painted the door frames of their houses, red. And then when the angel of death passed through, he would see the blood and he would pass by. Only the blood of the lamb could save them. And the same is true for us. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through the Israelites' minds at this time? When Moses comes up to them, he's like, all right, guys, here's what we got to do. You're going, to kill, you're going to kill a lamb, you're going to kill a goat, and you're going to paint the doorposts of your houses. 
and then you're going to avoid death. You're going to avoid this angel of death that's going to come through. I mean, can you just try to get into their brains for a second? Like, really? <laughs> that's it? It's that simple? Just smear some blood on the doorpost and we're good to go. Nothing complicated, no good works for us to do to earn our rescue. No special techniques or 10-step plans to prove to God that we deserve it. Just, just the blood? The blood is enough? I don't have to do anything, I just have to believe? That sounds backwards, doesn't it? I mean, can't I at least smear some of my own blood on the doorposts just so I can have some skin in the game too? Shouldn't my own blood, sweat, and tears count for something? I can at least contribute a little bit to my own salvation, right? But the answer is clear. The blood of the Lamb is sufficient. It's sufficient to rescue us from the forces of sin and death arrayed against us. Only the blood of Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, can save us from our predicament. Only the blood of Jesus can set us free from our own self-imposed prisons. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7b, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. See, the first Passover in Egypt was just a foreshadowing of Jesus And like all the Israelites were cleansed by the blood of the Passover lamb, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And whoever believes receives the benefits of his sacrifice. See, he he takes the stock of that hyssop plant, that, that, that plant, that group of them brought together, and he dips it in the blood, and then he offers to wash our dark hearts clean again and again, 70 times 7 and beyond. However deep the stain, see whatever guilt or shame that you're wrestling with right now, whatever is weighing on your conscience, Jesus encourages you to stop trying to paint the door frames with your own blood and to trust in His instead. Because His blood is enough to cover the worst things we've done and the worst things that have been done to us. The wages of sin may be death, but the other half of that verse says something else. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let me just say, if that's you this morning, if you recognize your need for Jesus and that your best techniques to to shield yourself from the brokenness of this world have failed, I encourage you, just right now even, to bow your heads and to say this short prayer with me. Jesus, I am in bondage and I need you to rescue me. Thank you for the cross, for the blood, and for forgiveness. I believe it and I receive it. Amen. That day in the Boundary Waters, I got stuck out in the lake, tried to paddle, do all I could to, to keep paddling on my own. My, my self-help efforts had failed me drastically. So I headed to shore, and I was slowly and miserably trying to pick my own. You know how, like, the, in the Boundary Waters, the, the bottom is rocks, and it's, like, slippery rocks, so you're just, you know, it's slow going. I was going along the shoreline. I looked up ahead. All of a sudden, around that corner... 
came my dad and my brother. And they came back for me when I couldn't get to them. They paddled up and they, they stabilized my canoe. And they brought me back safely to camp. I needed a rescue from someone else. Someone who, when I lost my grip on him, he wouldn't lose his grip on me. See, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need the blood of the Lamb to rescue me. And so do you. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastorkjolhaug at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.